News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It certainly seems like in 2020, it's either an embarrassment of riches when it comes to sports or there's absolutely nothing. And of course, lately there has been nothing. But plans are coming together for things like new NHL and NBA seasons. And of course, there's the Masters going on in November. Uh, Joining us now to talk more about this is Christian O'Mell, host of the sports show on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Christian. Morning, Simi. Are you really looking forward to the Masters this weekend? Because I feel like we've been a bit sports starved. Yes, uh, definitely. I've been watching all the NFL, but that's only a couple nights a week. And then, you know, just lying around listening to podcasts, I guess. But (laughs) now, right, it's weird to get up in the morning and the Masters are already on, right? They they started 7.30 a.m. Eastern today because they don't have a lot of daylight, right? They were off the course at 5.40 p.m. Eastern yesterday. So you're going to be able to, on the West Coast, watch the third and fourth rounds of the Masters and still have pretty much your afternoon and evenings on Saturday and Sunday. So you might have to get up pretty early on the weekend to to watch the final rounds, but it's basically you turn it on, you wake up, uh, and it's just on all day. And right now the leaderboard is absolutely packed. Tiger Woods is in the hunt. Uh, Scores are harder to come by this morning just because the course is a little harder than it was yesterday with all the rain, and it's not going to rain again. So I think scoring is going to be not as easy over the next couple of days, but a lot of people have been waiting for this because it is kind of the marquee golf event. And you're right, with the NBA, MLB, NHL are all done. We've got football, and that's about it. For but if you're, if you're not future. a football fan, right? Like Usually there's a bunch of stuff going on at this time of year where there's some kind of sport that you could enjoy. Right, normally this time of year, everything's on, right? You've got the NHL season that started, NBA. You've got the CFL playoffs winding down, like the the West final niece final should have been this upcoming Sunday. And then, of course, the NFL is trucking on like nothing's wrong with the world. Same with college football, though they've had a ton of games canceled because of COVID down in the States. So let's talk about though those NHL NBA seasons because they're getting plans together, it sounds like, for a, a pretty quick start. Like they're talking January here. Right. Well, basketball has way more things figured out than hockey. Uh, Now, to be fair, the draft and free agency in the NHL have already happened. In the NBA, they have not. So they are holding their draft this upcoming Wednesday, the 18th. Free agency, they have a moratorium period that opens next Friday so they can talk with free agents for a couple days. And then on Sunday, the 22nd, they can sign December 1st training camps, December 22nd, is when the season begins. Schedule's not out, but they've got all those dates already figured out, and they're having a 72-game schedule. One thing we don't know is where is Toronto going to play? Right now it's looking like maybe Tampa Bay, but not in Canada because we have the border issue. In the NHL, nothing is in stone. Nothing's been written down. Nothing's been figured out. They have said that they want to start January 1st. That has not changed. There have been ideas talked about. Their board of governors meeting yesterday, where they float. They talked about ideas that have already been out in the media, like a Canadian division where right. all the Canadian teams play. Where in America, you'll play a couple games in a row against the same team to cut down on travel. There was thought of maybe like a hybrid bubble where teams will enter for you know a few days and then go home for a bit. That's gaining less 
traction. I think they want to have people in their own arenas, even if no fans are going to be available there. And I think we're going to have to get some hard details over the next couple of weeks if they want to start January 1st, because that would mean they're going to have to have a training camp. I have, from the start, not thought that January 1st was ever going to happen. I was thinking more like mid to late January, probably like a 50-55 game season. But we'll see what happens right. over the next few weeks. Also uh, interesting to note as well with the NBA, the big question is what about the Toronto Raptors, right? Where is, are they going to find a temporary place to play in the U.S.? Yes, I think that's what's going to absolutely happen, right? The, they want to play at home. Can't blame them, but yeah. who knows when the border is going to be open again. I'm, we're probably looking at, at months, probably the whole season. So uh, they've. I've seen reports about Nashville – they kind of fell apart. Maybe Kansas City. I think the latest I've seen is Tampa Bay, which, I mean, yeah, Florida's not great with COVID, but where is in the States good with COVID? So they're going to have to find a place. Tampa Bay does not have a pro basketball team, but they've got an arena, so they're going to find Might somewhere work. to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not ideal for the Raptors, but better than not playing at all. Yeah, I feel for them because they're the only outside of the U.S. team, right, that deals with this problem, whereas in the NHL, at least you have quite a few teams that are outside of the United States. Well, they could just talk to their friends uh, at the Rogers Center, the Blue Jays, right, who had, what, like a week before the season started, were told by the government, hey, you can't play here, and then they eventually found out that they were playing in Buffalo. Toronto Raptors have more time to figure it out, which is a positive, but yeah, they've they're going to have to play their whole season south of the border, and the Jays got it done and made the playoffs, and Toronto will get it done and probably make the playoffs in the NBA too. They're one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Christian, do you think that we will see at some point next season fans back in these buildings? NBA, I do, because of a couple reasons. One, they've got more money and therefore can probably afford to do some kind of rapid testing for fans. They're looking at maybe like a 25% capacity you got to spread out. You got to wear your mask. Right. And a lot of, if you're sitting near the court, I've seen rules that you're going to have to test positive or test negative a couple times before going into the, the arena. NHL, I'm a little less certain of that just because there's, they don't have as much money. And I feel like they're going to be more cautious in the NHL, they, they, especially the teams in Canada. I feel like we just are more cautious in Canada. Yeah. The idea of arenas, uh, compared to like NFL stadiums where they do have fans, those are outside, right? Indoor, it's tougher. And a lot of NHL arenas are the same size of NBA arenas. But I just feel like the NHL is going to be a little bit more cautious when it comes to fans. Probably. And listen, enjoy the Masters this weekend. Will do. Thank you, Simi. We need to come back to making our wall strong so we can manage and control the spread instead of it controlling us. Because at this point, it is controlling us. The spread of COVID-19 right now is uh, crazy throughout Metro Vancouver. And so are people going to pay attention? Let's talk more about this now with our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. That really was quite the press conference to watch yeah. yesterday as Dr. Bonnie Henry reviewed the modeling figures to kind of see where we're at and then, of course, where we could possibly be going with COVID-19. We know that case numbers are on the rise, so yesterday's press conference was particularly important. And it was particularly jarring as well because she said that you know, at this rate, in less than two weeks, we're on track to see a thousand new cases of the virus each day if we don't really, really adjust our behavior. 
Yeah, I feel like I've been trying to analyze this about what went wrong. Where did we go wrong? And I think we be, we were kind of, com- not kind of, we were complacent in that we figured, well, I'm going to the gym, but it's okay because the gym is following all the rules. Mm, yes. And Von Palmer actually asked a really great question to Dr. Bonnie Henry about this as well. He said, you know, where did we all go wrong? Was it that we became overly confident? We thought that BC was doing so well. So we were slow in reacting to when the numbers started to climb because we didn't see the signs. We were blinded by our own confidence. And Dr. Bonnie Henry used all of that data that she gave yesterday to explain the province's latest crackdowns on social gatherings. She said that the the largest contributor to the spread of the virus is those social gatherings, those community interactions. So, you know, the problem isn't so much that you went to the gym because your gym might have been following all exactly. the rules. The problem is that you gathered with your gym friends before and after. We've seen transmission where people have been going to uh, the gym, for example, and all the right measures are being taken at the gym, but they're congregating before or after. We've seen it in hockey arenas. We've seen it at some youth football games. We've seen it with uh, old-timers hockey leagues where the the sport itself is fine, but it's the, the gathering together afterwards. And those are the household and community private party or events When we put in measures to try and reduce some of the uh, exposure potential in those areas we knew were risky, like at the banquet halls where we were seeing large numbers of people gathering um, at uh, nightclubs, which we have shut down, we've now started to see decreases in those areas. You know, Nikki, it just, it makes me mad, right? Because we want to keep these businesses open. We we want them to stay open and employ people and have all that stuff, but we are ruining it for them. Yeah, we are. What, exactly what she said. You know, the organizations, the the places you're going might be following the rules, but it's the stuff that you're doing yeah. when you're standing outside interacting with the big group that is ruining it for everybody else. And it was interesting, too, because she said some people just don't seem to be getting the message. She said, look, we've been doing similar protocols for, for weeks and weeks and months and months now where we've been limiting the size of social interactions. We've been telling people not to gather. But she said she still keeps getting questions from people, in this case, she said, from business professionals that really, really shock her. You know, I've had questions like, can I have a, a staff meeting with 12 people? I mean, it, it amazes me that people are asking me that now because this has been in place for a long time. Sure, if you have a really big room and people can stay far apart, you can have 12 people. But why do you need to have 12 people in a room together? You know, you need to think about uh, making sure that your business has a COVID safety plan that allows people to maintain their distances. And for many, that will be um, the ability to to work remotely, have staff meetings remotely, have um, so that you're not bringing people into an enclosed space together with with other people and their contacts and bringing that risk with them. Listen, I don't blame her for being shocked by that. And it's typical of Dr. Bonnie Henry because she's not the person to be mean. Uh, but I'm with her on that one. Who are these people who th- want to have a staff meeting of 12 people in person? And imagine having the guts to ask that of Dr. Bonnie Henry. I mean, I will say it. it before I went. <laughs> I'll say it. How dumb are you? though? How dumb are you yeah. that you want to do that? We, I mean, we have a staff weekly staff meeting here at work. It has been a virtual staff meeting since what, March? And that is yeah. not going to change anytime soon. I don't know why you would need to call a staff meeting and have everybody in person. 
Well, that's exactly it. And like she said, you know, why do you need 12 people in a room for a staff meeting right now, especially in a business setting like that? Technology has lent itself so well to working virtually, to doing those staff meetings on Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever platform it is that you're using, just holding a conference call. That's actually been something that's been a very simple transition during the pandemic. There's other businesses who have had to make a much more difficult transition because of the nature of their business. But to hold a meeting, I mean, you can certainly use technology to do something like that. Exactly. Okay, so people need to get their act together here, and I'm trying not to use stronger words uh, because it's oh, come very. On, Simi, it's no, Friday. I, can't. I know that's what makes me think I'm going to slip up and say something stronger, but it's just so frustrating because I don't want to see anything close, and people need to get their act together. Uh, Nikki, are you going to be kind of watching this weekend to see and observing if people are listening? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what people do. I mean, I have no... Look, I got a big essay that I got to write for university anyway, so I'm not leaving my house. But <laughs> that's maybe that's good. not pandemic-related anyways. <laughs> However, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if everyone else complies and, and follows the rules this weekend because it's going to be important if we want to stay away from jumping up to 1,000 cases a day. Exactly. And that's apparently what we are on track for if we don't watch ourselves. Nikki, thank you. So we recognize and we talk about climate change a lot, right? And plastic waste is a big part of that, something we know is damaging to the environment. So Metro Vancouver is holding a zero waste conference this weekend and plastic waste in the ocean is going to be a big part of that discussion. Now, joining us now to talk more about this is Chelsea Rockman, who's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Her research involves the impact that this kind of waste has on aquatic systems, and she will also be part of that conference. Chelsea, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. We've all seen the pictures of the, you know, all the plastic waste floating around in the ocean, but do we fully understand how damaging that actually is? Well, so I guess fully understand is is a strong word, but we have a really good idea. You know, we've been researching plastic pollution in the ocean now since about 2004, I'd say from a, a really scientific perspective since the early 80s in terms of quantifying it. There's no doubt that large pieces of plastic floating in the ocean can kill wildlife, that they harm populations and communities. And what we're really starting to understand is the microplastic. So those small pieces of the plastic after it's broken down that are, you know, less than a pencil eraser and smaller that are just ubiquitous. And we're starting to understand about the risk that those also have to wildlife at all levels of the food chain. Yeah. Can you give us an idea then of what happens? What kind of an impact does that have? Sure. Yeah. So microplastics are, you know, they get down to to tiny, tiny sizes that can even be ingested and eaten by zooplankton, right? So that base of the food chain that's so important for all the wildlife, including the fish that we eat. And we understand now that microplastics, you know, if they can... um, they can change the feeding behavior, which can alter the growth of the animal. They can alter reproduction by um, interacting with our hormone systems, which is so important for reproduction. And we're starting to understand more about how they actually transfer through food webs. So I think what a lot of people don't understand, you know, we, we can easily picture the fishing nets and the bags and the bottles floating around Um but microplastic has become so ubiquitous that it, it's really in almost every sample that we take from the ocean, including from the Arctic, as well as from the deep sea. Every sample, just about? I have personally, in my scientific career of more than a decade researching microplastics, I do not think I've ever had a sample with zero. 
And so that may not be true. Maybe two samples with zero. Okay. In what ways, though, is aquatic wildlife being impacted by this? Like, is it harming them? Can we see those effects? We can see the effects of the large plastic pollution. You know, we see whales washing up with bellies full of full of plastic. When it comes to the small microplastics, it's it's difficult in wildlife because. You can, I can take, for example, we research sport fish from the Great Lakes when they're being taken for the sport fish program. Sometimes the stomach and the filet is sent to us. We can see in Lake Ontario, sometimes more than 100 pieces in the stomach of an individual fish. But if we see an effect to that fish, say a lower condition factor, something that's, that looks unhealthy, we don't know whether it's the microplastic climate change, which you mentioned as we started the segment, uh, or some other contaminant that's coming from the city. And so it's really hard to draw that correlation. So we look to the studies we do in the lab to say, we know they can have an effect. We know the amount that can cause an effect. And we see that amount in some locations where the concentrations are very high. So where, Chelsea, where can people go to maybe find out more about this, to learn more about the impact of kind of what we're all doing here? Yeah, well, so we actually, out of our lab, not to plug us, we have uh, the U of T trash team is a community outreach group on our website. If you go to rockmanlab.com, we have a lot of resources on there. But also, you know, this issue has really just become so, it's it's really exploded in the 10 years that I've been researching it, that just Googling plastic pollution or microplastic and looking on credible sites can really unveil a lot of information. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thank you. That's Chelsea Rockman, who's assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, Her research focuses on plastic, debris, chemical contaminants uh, affecting aquatic systems. And she'll be part of that Metro Vancouver conference this weekend. It's a zero waste conference examining plastic waste part in the ocean will be part of that as well. Now, if there had been any doubt or any question about why last Saturday's new public health orders were necessary, it was pretty much settled if you checked out the provincial update with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix yesterday. Uh, they talked about the new modeling that they are working with, and it is not good. It predicts potentially exponential growth in the number of new cases, and that's for the first time here in BC. So we thought, let's talk more about this critical juncture that we are at that requires everybody to really go back to thinking the way we did last March, April, May. Joining us now is Daniel Coombs, UBC professor in mathematics who's done extensive work in modeling disease and illnesses. Daniel, thank you very much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. When you took a look at that, was there anything in that that surprised you? Um, I got to say no. Uh, on a scientific level, I think I think we, we could all see the writing on the wall and the, and the numbers of cases uh, going up over the last, um, especially over the last month or so. Um, on a personal level, uh, you got to look at it, say, okay, doubling time of 13 days. We're at, let's say, optimistically 500 cases a day at the moment on average for the last few days. And, um, you know, by the end of the, end of the uh, year, that's around three more doubling times. So 500, 1,000 to 2,000 to 4,000 cases a day if, uh, if we remain on this trend. And, you know, if nothing changes, then uh, there's no reason why we would get off this trend right now. Um, there's certainly not enough people in the population who've had this disease, but uh, immunity uh, in the community in, in British Columbia would start to have any real impact on this. 
When you look oh, back definitely. at the at the data on that, then what changed? Where along the way can you see the moment that something, the tipping point happened? Yeah. I, I, so if you if you just follow the line back, um, and and I, I've had co- I have colleagues here in the province who who've been sort of looking looking back in, in all the way back to really really July. We've we've really seen a, a slow sustained growth. Um, from from you know from from the July mid July maybe a little bit of a slowdown um, you know maybe uh, end of September beginning of October and then and then right back onto that same trajectory again. Right. So somewhere along the way we got too lax. Yeah, I think I think I think it's the simplest story. Um, there's no need to invoke um, you know seasonality or all that kind of thing. But the, sim- the simplest explanation is just that. Uh, people are, are really having more contact than than we can afford to have if we don't want to be on this uh, exponential trajectory. Okay, so what would it take at this point, Daniel, from the modeling work that you've done for us to change that curve to dial it back? Yeah, so so um, you know there, there are always people in society who, for, for reasons of their jobs, you know, they work in healthcare or they they work in positions where they have a, a lot of contacts every day, or, or you have large families, these kinds of things. Um, and this this means that the you know the rest of us have to try to to, to take up some of that um, and um, and reduce our number of contacts down. Um, you know, be careful about who we get close to. And and you know, we we saw back in in March that we can do this. You know, we had a, a strong epidemic, large numbers of people in the hospital back in March. There were there were some differences. We didn't know what was going on back then. Uh, Dr. Henry's had eight months to assemble. A picture of how the virus transmits in BC, um, um, but but you know other than that, the virus hasn't really changed, and um, you know it it comes down to how many close contacts do we have, and what are we willing to do individually to to stop the spread of this disease to break those chains of transmission. Right, and that's the thing that I think we need to explain to people here, Danielle, as well, is like having those lockdowns or cutting things back. What is the impact of that? What does that do to the virus? It's it's simple. If if you have if you have a person you know who's infected and, and back at the beginning of the epidemic, you know uh, estimates coming out of Asia back even even back in in uh, January February and the, and then these studies were repeated in Europe and in North America um, a little bit after that. Uh, if each person who's infected is is infecting you know two or three other people, um, then it doesn't take long to go from a single person to two people to four people, you know, or or from to three people to nine people. And if you, if you picture it kind of as a tree with a person at the base and it's branching as it goes out, um, and every tip is is a newly infected person on, on those branches, you kind of get the idea that you you need to try to cut down on on those those you know sequences of transmission um, going through the population. And if you can cut down enough of them, then it becomes very difficult for that tree as it were to grow um and, and that that's the, that's the goal and that that's why we're having increased restrictions at the moment is just to try to break those uh right. chains from person to person yeah so you're trying to not give don't give the virus an opportunity to jump to somebody else essentially yes exactly yeah so do you think a couple of weeks will do it i mean i know they've said two weeks but do you foresee it actually being realistically longer than that um, that is very difficult to say. Um, back in the spring, we did see um, an impact in the case numbers. Um, and uh, The situation was different back then. Um, we weren't, you know, back then the advice wasn't, wasn't to get tested. Uh, if, you were, if you were feeling basically like you had a cold, you should stay home, right? 
and not go and seek a test. The capacity wasn't there to test everybody. The numbers now are more reliable, but you know, if everything works um, as it did in the spring, then we would expect to start to see that within you know another ten days or so in the numbers. Um, I, I, I think uh, <laughs> I think expert opinion is that doing doing a two week thing is, is better than not doing a two week thing in terms of controlling the cases. Um, and I, I assume that the province will have the flexibility at the at the end of it to, um, to you know to, to make a decision going forward. Is this the key time then, Daniel? Like, if we want our restaurants to stay open, if we want to have those little things, you know, work people to go to work. I mean, how much do we need to draw back? Yeah. So the the um, yeah, the, the, I think this is this is exactly right. You know, the, uh, Dr. Henry used the words yesterday of circuit breaker. You know, if we can do this for for a few weeks um, and and draw back, then restaurants and and, and other uh, you know places where people people are able to socialize just a little bit can stay open. Going, um, I mean. You know, it's it's up to the government what they do with the restaurants. Uh, but um, you know, the, the, they'll be more likely to be able to to keep those open, and we'll be more likely to start um, you know seeing some family members that maybe we won't have seen for a little while uh, as we go into the holiday uh, period. One would hope. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you. That's Daniel Coombs. Fascinating. UBC professor in mathematics has done extensive work in modeling disease and illnesses, talking about that potential for exponential growth that we are at. We are at that tipping point right now where the cases are going up, doubling every 13 days. And that's why they are saying, please stop your social gatherings. Please don't make them shut down restaurants and bars and everything else. We can do this if we just dial it back. Oh, I'm sure you've checked the calendar by now, so you know it is Friday the 13th. And let's be honest here, sometimes doesn't it feel like 2020 has been one long Friday the 13th? Oh, I think it does. Now, typically we think of this as an unlucky day. It's been more like an unlucky year, but our Nikki Reitmeyer explores why we even associate bad luck with Friday the 13th. Today is Friday the 13th. If you're not superstitious, then you probably aren't bothered by what the calendar says. But either way, you certainly know what it means. Today is supposed to be an unlucky day. Friday the 13th happens at least once every year, when the 13th day of the month falls on a Friday. But it can happen up to three times a year, such as in 2015. The concept of an unlucky day or number is not exclusive to our culture. In Spanish-speaking countries, it's Tuesday the 13th that you really have to watch out for. Same for the Greeks. After all, the fall of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade occurred on Tuesday, April 13th, 1204. There's actually a name for the phobia of the number 13. Triskaidekaphobia. And if you're afraid of Friday the 13th, to be specific, that's known as Periscavita Catria Phobia. Periscavita Phobia. Yeah, that's the one. Periscavita Catria As I was saying, why are we so afraid of a day? Well, it may relate back to religion. The Bible says there were 13 people at the Last Supper on the 13th day of that calendar month, the night before Jesus' death on Good Friday. 
Then there's the theory that Friday the 13th is unlucky because on Friday the 13th, October 1307, the French King Philip IV arrested hundreds of the Knights Templar. It's worth noting, however, that neither of these possible origins immediately caught on. It wasn't until centuries later that people began to form ideas around this being an unlucky date, referencing these events from the past. But no matter where we got the idea from, the modern effects of this date are very real. It's estimated millions of people have some sort of fear relating to today, making this the most feared date in history. Why do we vote the way that we do? How is it that sometimes we are able to be convinced by an ad that we see or something that we hear. Well, our next guest is actually an expert in emotional persuasion. His latest book is called Lions in the Grass, A Marketing Insider's Guide to Mass Persuasion. And in it, he explores how emotional manipulation is used to influence everything from what we buy to how we vote. Very excited to talk to him about all this. Bill Morrison joins us now. He is an emotional positioning consultant and author, of course. Bill, what a great title. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Simi. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Do you think we underestimate how much we are manipulated by what we see and influencing everything that we do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our emotions make our decisions for us. And, and what happens is after we've made our decision, we come back in with rationale and cover up the tracks of our emotional decision and therefore we don't realize how much emotion actually plays a part in the things we do how we behave right so what are some of the tricks then that you would use in your line of work that you would recommend you know other people use to get us to feel emotional about unemotional stuff well, it's a great thing that uh, that you're bringing this up because it's really important right now, especially, you know, as we're watching down south and what's happening across the line. So whether it's marketing or whether it's politics, uh, by connecting emotionally rather than by connecting logically, we're seeing great swathes of people move one direction or the other. A good example, say, in marketing is uh, we could pick Dub Soap. And for a long time, Dub Soap presented on a logical level saying we put three drops of moisturizer in every bar. I think they used jojoba oil or something like right. that. And then what happened is they said, we're just another soap bar. We're just another brand. What we're going to do is we're going to change and become emotional. So they used emotional selling or story selling. And they started talking about inner beauty. And inner beauty spoke to their audience so much so that they stopped being a brand of soap and they started becoming a cultural conversation. Right. Are there pitfalls to that, though, as well? <clears throat> There's definitely some pitfalls to it. You really have to balance it and try and use your emotions or try and present with emotion. But you also have to add in some detail. But if you don't start off with, you know, once upon a time, you're never going to end up with and they live happily ever after. So you need a nice balance of the two, but definitely emotion is going to drive the decision. Right. You know what this makes me think of, Bill? It makes me think of that Ikea lamp commercial where the lamp is outside in the rain, in the pouring rain, and, oh. they, and then they want you to feel sorry for the lamp, and then they're like, don't feel sorry for this lamp. It's just a lamp. And I thought, wow, because they got you, because they did make you feel sorry for that lamp. I, I totally agree. I, I know the exact commercial you're talking about. I love it. It really is something that if you want to take an, an unemotional object and you want to com connect it emotionally, you need to connect to what people already are feeling and believing. Right. You, you don't fight it. You have to feed it. 
So in political circles, then, so when there's an election on and candidates are all trying to position themselves a certain way, do they do the same thing or is, do you think the general public sets the storyline? Uh, it's a bit of both. It really is. And if we just say, look at Trump for a moment as a as a recent and, and very, you know, uh, great example for us to look at and just peek over the over the line, we know that that Trump understands his base. He understand, understands that they don't trust politicians. Uh, they're weary of outsiders. They, they question perhaps one-sided media. So ra- again, rather than fight this, he's feeding this. He became the epitome of a non-politician. He warned of crooked Hillary and, and referred to illegal aliens as criminals and murderers, he put travel bans in place, referring to outsiders as terrorists. Right. So he used that. He, he was able to tap into something. So that's the thing you're always trying to do, right, is to tap into something, resonate. Absolutely. Yeah. Tap in to the, we store our experiences connected with an emotion so we can easily achieve empathy. Uh, if you've suffered the loss of a pet and I've never owned a pet, I can still empathize with you by relying on my emotions and what other things are similar. So we store everything with emotions. So by Presenting in facts and logic and detail and features, we're not connecting emotionally, whether it's Trump or whether it's marketing or whether it's politicians. If they present emotionally, they can connect in our experiences and that motivates us to act. Okay, so using continuing with that example then of the recent U.S. election, what mm. would you have recommended the two sides do differently? What could they have done better? Well, this is one thing I'd like to bring up, and I think it's really, really important is that Biden, Joe Biden won the election and Trump came in a, a close second or however you want to look at it. But Trump achieved 70 million votes and lost. But he achieved more votes than the wildly popular Obama achieved. So it's, it's a staggering number. And he did it with emotion. If I was to say anything to the Trump campaign, I would say last time, 2016, he presented a motion of fear, and a motion of hope. Make America great again. And if we don't, this is what's going to happen. This time, he focused purely on the fear of the others, uh, divisive politics. And he didn't offer that future, that future of hope. So he really lost them on that point alone. And in the Biden camp, they just were so reactionary to Trump. And they kept presenting, well, Trump is this and Trump is that. They kept using Trump's name in every presentation, and they were reactionary rather than emotional. They used numbers and details about the pandemic rather than talking about what the pandemic meant to people and the emotions they were feeling. So they missed out that. Interesting. Fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to us about that this morning, Bill. Oh, that's great, Simi. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's Bill Morris, and he is an emotional positioning consultant, which is a great job title. He's the author of a book called Lions in the Grass, A Marketing Insider's Guide to Mass Persuasion. That's the thing these days, right? We are so manipulated by so much, uh, you know, commercial advertising, everything. Like, think about it. Every time you go on social media, the ads there are tailored to everything that you like because they're always trying to get at you to influence you in some way or another. And it is very difficult difficult now to kind of break out of all of that. That is a huge business out there. Well, we're learning an awful lot with the testimony that's been happening at the Cullen Commission looking into money laundering over the last couple of weeks. This week, it was two witnesses painting 
pretty different pictures of the situation that was unfolding in our casinos 10 years ago. But let's get updated on what's been happening. Joining us now is Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So we've got some, we had one witness who was kind of verifying everything else we've heard, but a couple of different pictures. So tell me, what did we hear? Well, we, we've talked about former uh, minister responsible for gaming, Rich Coleman, before. And yesterday, really uh, another example of some bombshell testimony. We had the executive director, former executive director of GPEB, that's the gaming regulator. Uh, his name is Larry Vandergraaff. He said from 2008, his staff got very concerned about this flood of $20 bills coming into several Vancouver casinos they started escalating warnings to their bosses, who are essentially uh, deputy ministers and ministers in BC's government, and also the BC Lottery Court managers. They said, you have to put a hard cap on the 20s flowing in. We believe this is drug cash. We believe it's being laundered through the casino and the vehicle of whale gamblers, that's VIPs, and being paid back in China. Memo after memo, we heard about yesterday, uh, and Mr. Vandergraaff said nothing happened. Finally, in 2010, he says he met with Rich Coleman in GPEB's offices in Burnaby, and he says they had a 20-minute conversation. He, uh, he really, uh, he, he, he reported it verbatim. He said that Mr. Coleman started by saying, what's going on with this money laundering you want to talk about? And uh, Mr. Vandergraaff said, he said, point blank, this is, uh, th- th- we can't accept $10,000 bricks of cash wrapped in yeah. elastic bands. This is drug money laundering. Uh, and according to Mr. Vandergraaff, uh, the former minister uh, listened, walked out, and essentially nothing changed. I'll finish up here for this little nutshell. In 2014, Mr. Vandergraaff and his assistant get fired. He testified yesterday. He believes it's because he was so strongly recommending, you need to stop this drug cash coming in right now. We can tell you how to do it. And he says the government didn't want to act. And once again, though, Sam, we're circling back to the name Rich Coleman. We are. We have, we talked last time uh, on your show, and uh, you're right. We haven't heard very much from Mr. Coleman at all. But again, uh, he has said, uh, my lawyer uh, advises me essentially uh, not to comment on these allegations we're hearing in the inquiry. He expects Mr. Coleman to testify later this spring. And we should say, you know, there have been stories before with whistleblowers alleging that Mr. Coleman and others turned a blind eye. Mr. Coleman strongly rejects that. Uh, He says that they had no part of turning a blind eye to money laundering in B.C. government. Okay, what else did we hear this week? Well, we heard uh, the cross-examination of... uh, Daryl Tottenham, that's a BC Lottery Corporation investigator. He filed really uh, an incredible amount of uh, records, and we talked last time that he had outlined how uh, BC Lottery Corp understood they believed there were two of these loan sharking networks working in BC casinos, mostly Richmond's River Rock Casino, and then they discovered no, in fact, there were uh, the, the two people they thought bosses were actually working together. And Simi, I've talked before, we know that this game is allegedly called the Big Circle Boys. So he right. was tested on his evidence uh, this week, and uh, really uh, it got into some interesting territory. Uh, He's essentially, he had acknowledged that uh, BC Lottery Corp uh, management uh, bent the rules for VIP gamblers. But again and again, he said uh, in the casinos, they were, for the by and large, uh, reporting suspicious transactions, doing their job. They made some mistakes, but uh, he 
testified he doesn't believe that that any serious breaches were made. Maybe really? it came down to training. He's he's uh, he's standing on that hill and he, he's not coming off it. I, I have a feeling that we're going to hear more from the Cullen Commission lawyers uh, digging at those claims from people that do say, look, uh, not all the rules were followed, but we don't think there was any ill intention because we're certainly hearing another side of the story. Mr. Vandergraaff said, look, Anyone that really knew what was going on in those casinos knew very well that uh, this is suspected large-scale drug money laundering. Look, uh, that's what we've heard from a number of people yeah. now. So really, we have some some competing testimony going on. No kidding. Another fascinating week, Sam. Pencil us in. We're going to want to talk to you next week about this, too. Absolutely. Thanks, Simi. Thanks, Sam. That's Sam Cooper, our Global News investigative journalist, following along at what's going on at that uh, Cullen inquiry into money laundering. Uh, differing witnesses on that, but how do you how do you square that circle? Like, that just doesn't make sense. And clearly, lots of questions that have yet to be answered. Well, let's talk about some good news out there, shall we? Because if you are a skier, a snowboarder, a snowshoer, you name it, you're going to be very happy to know that the North Shore Mountains are opening uh, ahead of schedule, it sounds like, too. Plus, there's some other good news about what's going to be happening up there during the upcoming holiday season. Joining us now is Julia Grant, Communications Manager at Grouse Mountain. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. How's it looking up on Grouse this morning? Oh, it's very snowy up there. It's, uh, we've seen almost 35 centimeters, I think, since yesterday afternoon. So all, all good signs for a, a good winter season ahead. Okay, and when will you be opening? We don't have an opening day confirmed yet. Uh, our uh, team is working away, and uh, with this snowfall, uh, we're hoping to announce that soon. So will there be kind of limitations on how many people can go up at the mountain? I'm thinking about, like, COVID restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we have been, we've actually been operating through the summer and are working on translating some of the successes we found with our safety program protocols through the summer into our winter season. Uh, some of the key things will be we are going to be managing capacity through advanced Skyride reservations. So if you're looking to take the Skyride tram up to enjoy the mountain, you'll need to book in advance and reserve your time for upload and download. And that'll help us, you know, manage lineups and, and capacity. Now, did people get used to doing that over the summer? Did that system work well? Yes, we had a lot of positive feedback from uh, guests and pass holders at the mountain. So we will be continuing that through the winter season. Okay, and I guess the good news for people out there too, Julia, is that you're already looking ahead to the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, the festive season is a, a fun time around the mountain, and we're going to be holding our annual Peak of Christmas celebration, which uh, kicks off a week today. A, a week today? Yes, we, uh, we run it throughout the whole month of December, and I think maybe we've added a little bit of extra time because, you know, people need some holiday cheer this, this year especially, oh, no I think. No kidding, do they ever. Also, what is involved with the peak of Christmas? What will people see? So we're going to be focusing on some of our uh, festive outdoor activities. We have our magical light walk, which is actually uh, light installations on a path through the snowy trees around a small lake that we have on the mountaintop, and you can either walk or snowshoe along that path. We also have our outdoor skating pond, which is really nice, and all the trees and everything is decorated around it. And we have received word from the North Pole that uh, two representatives, Dancer and Vixen, will be nice. joining us on the mountain. So you can come up and meet two of Santa's real reindeer. Oh, nice. Now, we know this is always a popular thing to do, but again, are people going to require reservations? Are you going to keep doing what you're doing? 
Yes, that will also be uh, required for visiting the peak of Christmas. We'll have advanced Skyride reservations in place. And we have also begun uh, for the winter season. Uh, face coverings are mandatory when coming to the mountain. And you'll need those inside all our resort facilities, as well as in areas where uh, there's more people and physical distancing can't be maintained. Right. So it's good. good that you're giving everybody extra time to get up there then. Exactly. So we're, we have a nice long peak of Christmas celebration. It runs through to January 3rd. So uh, lots of time to come up and enjoy what we have at the mountain. Now, we know that everybody has been transitioning and dealing with all these extra things, Julia, this year. What's it been like up at Grouse Mountain? Like, for, were you worried for a time there that there wouldn't be a peak of Christmas? Well, you know, it was about getting creative and uh, reimagining things. I think a lot of people are in that process right now. You know, one of our uh, our popular elements of traditional peak of Christmas has been Santa Claus himself. He won't be joining us at the mountain this year, but uh, we're hoping we may get some messaging from him through the season. (laughs) But uh, really just working with, uh, we're we're lucky to have a lot of outdoor space, a lot of fantastic outdoor activities for people to enjoy, you know, the mountaintop and the fresh air. So uh, we're, uh, we're looking forward to welcoming people to that. Okay, so let's walk people through how to get a ticket, how to approach this if they want to go to this. So the first place to start would be our website, grossmountain.com, and you would go on there to purchase your ticket, and through our checkout process, you will actually be able to select your upload time and your download time, and that'll give you a a window that you will be arriving at the mountain uh, and uh, coming up to enjoy, and then... What it's, what's nice is you don't have to worry about there being a big lineup when you come to the mountain. You'll have your reserve time and you will travel up to the mountaintop and enjoy all our activities. Some people might actually like how much less busy it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, it's, a, it's an opportunity and uh, uh, a way for uh, people to still get out and enjoy what we have to offer. Awesome. Okay, Julia, what's the website? grossmountain.com. That's where you'll find all our information and you'll be able to buy your peak of Christmas tickets. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Julia Grant, communications manager at Grouse Mountain. So we know that Cypress is opening today with limited hours if you want to go skiing. Grouse will be looking at that over the next few weeks, as Julia just said, but they want everybody to know that the peak of Christmas is going ahead at the top of Grouse Mountain. If you've never done it before, Oh, it's so great. It's really so great. And we don't often have a white Christmas down here, but boy, is it ever like a winter wonderland when you get up to Grouse Mountain. So that is going ahead, but it's very important to remember you can't just head up there. If you feel like it, you're going to have to plan ahead. As we have gotten used to doing with so many other things, you're going to have to buy an advance ticket, book your time for going, and make sure that you hit that window. And you can find all of that on the Grouse Mountain website. But yeah, that's going to be coming up there, launching November the 20th. So in one week, and it'll run right through until January the 3rd.